brought to you by CGTN Europe. I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to The Agenda. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, the performing arts industry was forced to shut down almost overnight. Theatres, concert halls and comedy clubs suddenly went dark. This week on The Agenda podcast, we talk to key figures in the industry and try and find out how a multi-billion dollar industry will adapt to an unprecedented threat. First on the podcast, I talk to Ignacio Garcia Belinga, Director General of Madrid's Teatro Real Opera House, to find out what effect COVID-19 has had on their operation. What was, what was lockdown like for the uh, theatre? How did you survive? It was easy to take the decision uh, because it was just saying to everybody, you have to go home. So the decision is just to say pro- four words to everybody. But at the same time, it was really hard because it was to put at the end to the, to the opera that was in the States. Uh, we were working for Achilles in Surio. And... And it was to take the decision that we have to lock down, to close everything, to leave the theater, and it is uh, hard for your heart. But the decision is easy to make because the government say that you have to do it, that we have to go home, so we have just to, to do it. And you are also one of the first opera houses to reopen in Europe. What, what, how easy was that decision, or how hard was that decision? First of all, we, 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 we create a medical expert committee with uh, very well-known uh, doctors uh, uh, with a lot of experience uh, in relation with this uh, pandemia. And they really g- gave us uh, some kind of recommendation about how to do it. Because I'm not a doctor, people we, that work here in Teatro Real, we, we are not uh, people specialized in, in, in medicine. So we thought that uh, we had to, to, to have an, a medical committee uh, to advise us about how to do it. And, and how have the audiences reacted uh, so far? I, I, I'm just wondering what kind of changes you had to make to the experience. So I, I will tell you that the audience it's, it's wonderful. It's really polite. It's really uh, respect about the measures that we have to take into effect in Teatro Real. They, they are trying all the time to collaborate with the uh, Teatro Real staff about the indications and they, they want to come here to enjoy the opera and at the same time they, they, they try to be very respect, very uh, conscience about the situation to make everybody enjoy the opera. Uh, how are you faring? Because I don't know if the teatro is, is completely independent or whether or not the government has helped you. The government in Britain, as you know, has just handed over more than a, a billion dollars. Uh, we have to cancel around uh, 15 operas, so 15 performances. So uh, to close a theatre for uh, during four months is really hard. Uh, uh, the income really has decreased uh, because uh, our financial model comes from the subscribers, from the public, and from the audience, and we receive only around 20, 25 percent of the subvention from the public administration. So that is not so much. But we feel really confident about the situation. We are sure that the situation is going to improve in the close future. 
and we are feel really confident with the governmental help, with the sponsors, with the donors, and with the uh, subscribers, and with the audience. And, uh, and we feel that all together we'll put again the Teatro Real uh, uh, on the top. You're a member of um, Opera Europe and you're also on the board of uh, Latin America Opera. Has the world of opera been coming together to cooperate to take you forward? Yes, really. Uh, we, we had a lot of meetings in the, these four months just to share ideas, uh, to collaborate, to, uh, to, uh, to think together how to reopen. We all fight for the opera. We all fight for opening the opera houses again so we 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 really discuss really uh, uh talk together and we really saw experience because the the situation in each country was really different uh, from the north and in, in in sweden or in uh, in germany or in spain or in italy with the, the the pandemic situation was really different so we saw our experience experience together trying to put our ideas uh, in common uh, to work uh, for the future. You've been streaming a number of your performances online. Is that where you could pick up a new audience, perhaps? Yes, sure of it. Uh, really, we, we have a, a, a website uh, on demand, My Opera Player, and uh, we had in, a, in around a couple months a new around uh, 50,000 new subscribers, so that's a lot. Uh, we had around uh, people that uh, uh, show one million operas in our in our website. We have an agreement with, with the NCPA theater in Beijing, and we have some operas and concerts from the NCPA uh, theater in, in Beijing. And so we have new audience uh, from China, we have new audience from Latin America, from Europe, and also from, from Spain. So, so it's, a, it's a new way to uh, make opera closer to, to, to the public. So some theatres across Europe have been able to reopen, but many arts festivals have had to be cancelled, including one of the world's largest, the Edinburgh International Festival. With me now is the director of the festival, Fergus Linehan. Fergus, you cancelled the festival. How difficult a decision was that? It was a very difficult decision. Um, I mean, we did it. We did it relatively quickly. We cancelled on the first of April, um, and that was a great advantage, actually. To, to but we realised that there's, there's particularities about what we do, which is not just about putting people in theatres, but also putting people on planes and bringing audiences from all over the world. So it was as much to do with the particulars of, of an international festival as just the, the difficulties that the performing arts are facing. What are the financial implications for you uh, of, of closing down the festival this year? Well, it was about um, four to five million pounds in revenue that disappeared. Um, and what we've done is we've made a commitment to all the artists that were in our 2020 programme to perform in 21. So we've been working very hard to fundraise and figure out how we can manage costs. Um, so I think that it's not just in relation to 2020. I think it's trying to think about what's coming in 21 and 22. Um, and if we do re-emerge in 21, how things might be different, both in terms of funding and ticket sales and trying to chart a course through that. 
How has the city reacted to the cancellation? Because it's not just you holding festival, there's a famous fringe as well. These must be huge losses of revenue to Edinburgh. Overall, Edinburgh's festivals bring in revenues of about £300 million each year. So uh, it's going to be very, very sorely felt. Um, and I think that it's something unique maybe to this particular festival is that the arts play such a critical central role to the economy of the city. Um, and um, we want to make sure that we are back and ready to go as soon as possible. And hopefully that's going to be August 21. Are you able to offer audiences uh, anything else than live performances? Well, what we've been working on at the moment is trying to give people a sense of what we would have been doing. Um, and um, there has been an explosion in terms of online and broadcast capture of the live performing arts. And we've commissioned a whole range of films where what we've been trying to do is to bring ensembles of dancers and musicians and actors back into the theatres because they've been, like all the rest of us, banished to their bedrooms and kitchens um, and bring them back together to create specially commissioned films, um, which will give a sense of what we would normally do, whether it's in opera or orchestral music or theatre or dance. Have you been talking to uh, festival organisers in Europe, getting their ideas, seeing how they're reacting to this pandemic? Yeah, and obviously there's different approaches in different countries and different countries have been affected in different ways. But of course, everyone's eye is towards next year and also towards how, as organisations, we can help the festival ecosystem because it's not just our organisation. There are lighting hire companies and sound hire companies and stage managers and taxi drivers who are reliant on the festival and seeing what we can do to create activity that will support that ecosystem. Because one of the great concerns is that we can come back, but that all of the venues and all the, all the support mechanisms to make a festival like this happen um, aren't as secure as they should be. Fergus Linhan, many thanks to you for joining us on the agenda. For actors and directors, a socially distanced world creates all kinds of new challenges. So how are they going to deal with a new approach to rehearsals and, of course, to performance? Well, joining me now is the award-winning actor, director and writer Simon Callow. Uh, Simon, uh, the government has announced this new £1.57 billion uh, pound, uh, emergency support package for the arts. How has that been received within the acting community? Oh, with huge relief, of course, uh, initially. Um, naturally... Uh, it's a gesture, a very big gesture. It says that the arts matter, that they are economically important, that they deserve consideration. That's all fantastic. How it actually is going to pan out is another matter. We all await, you know, with bated breath. Um, uh, clearly, for the most part, the money is going to go to organisations. And that's good because in the end they engender the work, they engender uh, parts for actors, uh, jobs for directors, jobs for designers and, and, and all the makers of all the elements that make up theatre. Um, but, it, of course, it doesn't exactly address the rather critical current situation of uh, 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 the self-employed, which includes almost all actors and almost all directors. Um, the money, uh, as you say, will be well received. It will be spread pretty thinly across the whole of the performing arts. But theatres still can't open 
And that's the real problem, isn't it? I mean, what has been terrible is the theatres have been closed and have had no income. That has been e almost equally terrible because the danger is that everything that has been built up dissolves and uh, 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 disappears because, you know, it's, it, these are human organisations built on, on people above all and uh, if, if th those people aren't able to work, they'll have to find work elsewhere and the, the danger is that all the wonderful tradition... Uh, and continuity of work that has been built up over so many years will, will, will be wasted. However, I and everyone is doing their absolute best not to be in any way pessimistic about this. I think we need to embrace it, to be grateful for it, and then to figure out, as you suggested, the ways we can get theatres opening and functioning. That's a, a really grave question, both for performers and for, for, for audiences. How, how close can we be to each other? And closeness is the very thing that the theatre aims for. <laughs> Unlike uh, the recorded media, we're, we're, what we're trying to do is to create a sense of community and identity within an audience and within the players on stage. And uh, for, to be physically separated, well, in the case of musicians, it's a, almost impossible possible thing uh, for, for, for a, a, a large physical separation. I mean, it's now one metre, and that makes it just about possible, I think, for an, a small orchestra to play together. Uh, um, but in case of uh, acting performances or ballet or opera, uh, there's uh, a, a, a physical contact is one of the most crucial things and the most expressive things. Oh, well, How this we is, this relate. Is... Yeah, well, exactly. This is what I want to know. If you can sort of sum up in a way sort of how important an audience is to an actor's performance. The great Max Wall used to say at the end of his act, he used to say, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. You have been 50% this evening. They're 50% of the event, you know. That, that's what it is. It's, it's them and us. And we hope every actor and performer hopes that we will affect the audience in some way, but we also hope that they will affect us. So it's an interchange. Every single performance, it can't be more uh, sufficient, it can't be sufficiently stressed. Every single performance in a live theatre is one off. It's its own thing. It's just that night, that afternoon, what happened in the theatre that time between that particular audience and us as the players, that's, the, that's what we're, why we're there. How will the performance change? You won't have a front row, probably, because uh, you can't get too close to the actors. Yes. Well, I mean, I think almost everybody in my profession and uh, many musicians and many dancers and singers will not be unfamiliar with not entirely full audiences. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. And, uh, it, that's or play fine. to a half-empty matinee house, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes they're the best performances ever. Any actor will tell you that. Sometimes they're very relaxed and they're very intimate because people are, are not quite so jammed up tight together. So I think that's not a major problem. I mean, that, that will, you know, also change. I think bit by bit but, we'll... But, we'll, but what, we'll about scenes, to, what about scenes that require a degree of intimacy? No, that's another whole matter. However, uh, it's also worth observing that uh, our current touchy-feely-ness 
is fairly recent. We've all seen movies of the 1940s, 30s, 40s, 50s even, where people don't really touch each other very much at all. And all the electricity is engendered by the fact that you can't touch, that you long to touch, that you want to be in touch with another person. And, and that is something that we may have to work around and adapt. I mean, the whole tendency of theatre since the war has been towards a more physical theatre where uh, um, people are very physically free and very physically exposed and open. Uh, but the theatre before that was not like that at all. And it was nonetheless sexy, nonetheless exciting, nonetheless um, powerful and expressive. So we obviously we're going to have to re-explore some of those older theatrical modes. Well, I, I don't think we should hope to stay that way, but it, it, it certainly may provide a useful transitional approach. Theatre in Britain has survived plagues before. It survived the Puritans, didn't it, during the Civil War. It survived the Second yep. World War. So I'm sure you'll be pretty confident the theatre will survive this pandemic. Yeah. I, I, I'm absolutely certain that, that the theatre started in caves in, 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 the, in the far, 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 far distant, pre, almost prehistoric past. And uh, it, it answers a very basic need, which is to have stories played out for you. There's nothing more compelling or attractive, but it's always stories we're telling. And, 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 and there's never going to be uh, a, a time when people don't want uh, to hear stories from people the whites of whose eyes they can actually see that they want to feel that they're in the presence of somebody who is actually talking very directly to them. And I sort of repeat myself a little bit, but you forget that the thing about television and TV is that you can't change anything in the actors' performances at all. That's it. They're fixed for all time. They may be, you know, wonderful performances. They may have every appearance of spontaneity, but they're never going to change. It happened. It's historic. What happens in the theatre is present. It's now. It's something that proves to ourselves that we're alive, you know. We're engaged and connected and can interchange with each other. That's the glory of the theatre. That's what it's all about. That brings us to the end of another edition of The Agenda. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGT in Europe.